Welcome to Dismantling the High Performance Narrative, a podcast that challenges what it means to be a high performer. Here are your hosts, Lauren Williams and Rob Kalvaroski. Welcome to another bonus episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, I joined Lucas Marino on a LinkedIn Live. We talked about leadership, we talked about psychological safety, and we talked a little bit about mental health. It's a great episode, so I hope you enjoy it. We've been having a lot of success lately with launching leaders in the Leadership Launchpad Project program. So if you're interested in that, we currently have spaces available for a private offering. So if you have a large team of around 10 or more that you want to teach leadership to, reach out to me, Rob's Reliability Project at gmail.com, and we can hook that up. If you want details about what's in the program, go to robsreliability.com leadership to learn more. If you love leadership content, subscribe to the Leadership Launchpad Project podcast on your favorite podcast platform and definitely drop us a rating and review on Apple. And if you like mental health and performance content, subscribe to Dismantling the High Performance Narrative on your favorite podcast platform. Everybody, I really appreciate you listening. And here is the LinkedIn Live with Lucas Marino. Hey, so for those that don't know Rob, I'm going to say a couple of nice things about him before we get started. And, um, you know, we we run the show here once a week. I try to get a, a guest on. But the only reason I'm even here right now is because of Rob. Because, I don't know, it was maybe almost two years ago, Rob had me as a guest on his podcast. Um, and that kind of was like my first real uh, like interview in a podcast type thing where it wasn't uh, while I was active duty. So... Um, I had gotten out of the military and I was, uh, I met Rob and we hit it off and I actually interviewed him on one session of his show, which was like a, like a one-off, like I was in a parking lot interviewing Rob. It was really cool. <laughs> I said, Rob, I'm stuck at a dealership, but uh, I wanted to get this done. And he's like, let's do it, man. So we interviewed Rob and it was great. And when I kicked the whole thing off with the Life Cycles live feed, it was like immediate, like that day I was like, hey, dude. You got to get on. He's like, I can't wait to get on. So this is it. We were able to get Rob on, and that's awesome. And Rob's a, a leader in the maintenance and reliability community, particularly in the space of leadership and mental health and psychological safety. And we'll, I'm going to pick your brain a little bit about the psychological safety piece because I don't think a, a, a lot of folks know how to associate that yet. We, we do a lot with that in the military, but um, maybe not in some other industries. And I'm interested to learn a little bit more about that. And um, Rob is... Uh, you know, kicking, kicking great butt um, as the co-host of the Dismantling the High Performance Narrative podcast, right? Are you guys still rolling regularly with uh, episodes? We're, we're rolling regularly, yeah. So I got yeah. two two shows right now, right? So I have Dismantling the High Performance Narrative, which mm-hmm. is very much focused on mental health and performance. And this aspect of basically like if everything looks good on the outside, you're still showing up, you're still doing great things. You can still struggle on the inside. And I know like Luke, I know you, you struggled as well. And for me, like I've literally been told by a psychiatrist that I wasn't depressed enough because I could get up and go to work. And so that's where that show comes uh, uh, from. And yeah. And then the other show is the leadership launchpad project, very much focused on like, people-centric leadership, and I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about it today, yeah. but it's it's these elements of high performance in the workplace that I don't really see in the heavy industrial space too much. And so that's where that's where we're trying to bring that type of content to, to our audience. Well, see, I think the whole high performance thing is super, um, super cool that you're focusing on that because it's a reality. And in the military... In the officer community, when I was there, it's an up or out organization. So if you're not performing at a high enough level, your your evaluations don't reflect that, or at least in the opinion of your your leadership, uh, they'll write up your your evaluations if they don't reflect high performance. Then you could potentially be at risk for being what's called passed over, where they don't promote you that cycle. And if you get two passovers in a row, you're out. 
And yeah. so, you know, for the older generation of, of active duty, if we didn't make it to the 20 year mark, uh, by the time that happens or close to it, you know, you're, you're not going to get your pension. And for the, yeah, which is like ugh, brutal. And there, there's that, that happens. That yeah. happens to people. You have to get 20 years of the pension, but there's people that, that don't make it at the 17 and 18 year mark and they go home with no pension. And that's really like a hard pill to swallow. Um, and then um, we had this culture of, you know, you've just got to be on top of the game and you have to maintain this like really high performing type. Um, I don't want to say it's, 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 I mean, it really is reputation, you know, whether you're, it's, it's not, it's about perception, right? Because it's like, you're always worried about how people are perceiving your level of performance. And so whether that translates to reality and you actually perform at a high level or not, you're constantly aware of this pressure and it changes the way people respond to their environment, the culture on ships or in the office or whatever. And it really does take a toll on, on, on people that, you know, may or may not thrive in that kind of environment. Some people just run with it and it, and it's great. Others, they run, they do well with it, but it hurts them along the way. They just don't show it. So it's really just kind of crazy. Very interesting to me. So like, how did all that develop for you? And like, where, where is that, you know, what, what's kind of, what have you learned about it since you started the podcast? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that the military leans into psych safety and then you say that because managing perception about yourself is literally the inverse of what psychological safety is supposed to be. Yeah. Right. And and you say if people run with it and and I think it's not necessarily that, right? It's and people can thrive by putting on a mask and and that's fine. But there's a limitation to how long and how effectively you can do that. Yep. And so when we talk about it from a high performance perspective, they will hit a glass ceiling mm-hmm. or a brick wall at some point. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And so well, we can, we can dig more there. But in terms of the podcast, I mean, for me, it's really a passion project. Like mm-hmm. I think that for me – and, and my co-host, Lauren. So Lauren, she's um, she's a high-performance coach. She played professional women's hockey. She went to University of Wisconsin, played four years, won a national title in the NCAA. Awesome. Um, tr- yeah, tried out for Team Canada. And the story and the reason why we started that podcast was, was she told a story in a group that we were in together about how she was trying out for Team Canada and crying in the closet at the at night, and mm-hmm. I was like, I understand that type of depression. That's the de- that's what I have, and mm-hmm. I was because like when I was probably the worst I've been. Although last year was pretty bad, or now it's bad too. Um, but but like before, when I was really depressed in 2012, 2013, like I was getting treatment, I was working a full time job, and yet I was like. I had heard Joe Rogan talking about how exercise in nature helps you with depression. And so I started like running in the bush like two to four hours a day because I was like, well, if it's going to work, it'll work. And so that's what I was doing. And like people and like if you look at the criteria from psychiatrists about depression, like one of the things is like how much does it affect your life? Mm -hmm. And like I even got this like – because I go get treatment now and it's like they asked me it was like how is it affecting your work and I'm like well it doesn't really like I just like show up and I do whatever I have to do but that's a skill that like we have been taught as high achievers Hmm. like we've been taught to suck it up and show up and do what we have to do regardless of how we feel regardless of anything and literally that's the type of attitude that will kill us it's just a matter of time wow yeah that that's that's really but I, you know I, I give you a pat on the back for being aware of that man because there's a lot of people that just aren't aware of that they, they haven't gotten as far into this you know what i'm saying i mean and it, i say that optimistically but you know it, it doesn't make it feel any different i'm sure <laughs> it's like, great i'm aware of what's hurting me you know it's like but 
you know, I think that there's a there's a hesitation on on behalf of people that are in that realm of of uh, being a self proclaimed or at least outwardly recognized high performer that you know it would be a weakness to to acknowledge that, particularly out loud. And so they're they're disincentivized, I guess you could say, from from being honest about what's going on in their lives. And um, that's real unfortunate. I've lost a, a couple of friends this last year. And, uh, it was, it was for different, you know, it's various reasons. Um, but it all stemmed around mental health. And, uh, and, and one of them, uh, was, was a high performer that, you know, you'd have never guessed anything was wrong. And so I'm, I'm really interested in getting your take on like, when, when you have someone that's a high performer or, or is perceived to be a high performer and they're not talking about it, but you can tell something's, you know something's different. Um, how do you know, not, not looking for medical advice or anything, but just from your experience and what you've gone through, you know, what's the best thing you can do for someone in that situation? Yeah. I mean, for me, this is where the leadership aspect ties in for me. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I believe that the lack of leadership that I've experienced through my career has absolutely hurt my mental health and triggered a lot of the stuff that that ended up there mm. um now from a leadership perspective when one of your your performers um you start to notice that they're struggling and you start to see maybe the performance is dropping or you know they're they're looking like they're checked out or all these things and it's incredibly difficult. And I've literally sat, like I had a manager sit in front of me and say, Hey, are you okay? And I was basically suicidal. And I said, yeah, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. Right. And that's where the psychological safety and the vulnerability and the leadership aspects need to happen. They need to happen. You felt like he wasn't the right leader to talk to about what was going on. Yeah, I mean, there's there's ground floor trust and there's ground floor vulnerability and connection that you have to form as a leader sure. before you can expect somebody to open up to you. Right. And, and that wasn't built in the way that it needed to be. Part of that's my fault. Like, I mean, I wasn't able to share outwardly that I was depressed, but also like this is why I teach this stuff in, in the leadership space is – is I think if leaders lean into vulnerability and they lean into connection and building trust, then that conversation becomes easier to have. Mm -hmm. And it's not that you're going to provide mental health support. We're not asking leaders to do that. We're asking leaders to be there and be like, Hey, like, you know, you're struggling. Do you need help? Can I refer you to EAP? Can I call a therapist for you? Can I give you time off to deal with this stuff? Like this is the support that leaders should be offering, right? Like we're not saying, hey, like we need you to do EMDR therapy for your staff. Like, yeah. not, like you're not a psychologist, like back off, right? right? But but that's what we're asking for. Gotcha. Yeah, that's that's you know, I think it's really important uh, for people to hear that because I think some some leaders just aren't comfortable with like addressing the problem, but they are more comfortable with trying to address the culture that could possibly help the person um, just because, it, you know, they just don't, they don't feel like they're the right person to deal with the issue. Unfortunately, if they just stay quiet and they don't change anything, they somewhat become an enabler and it just perpetuates the, you know, the continuation of this type of, um, of, 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 I guess, environment for the person that's having a problem instead of, you know, putting, propping things up around that person to help them. Um, yeah, I, I noticed that a lot. Uh, you know, there's, I don't want to say it's a pride thing. Um, I think sometimes it's mistaken as a pride thing with men, but especially in technical fields and in kind of in rougher environments, you know, uh, sometimes it's pride. <laughs> and that's, that's on behalf of the leader and the person, you know. And like true leadership is not having the answers to everything, mm-hmm. right? It's being able to go into uncomfortable situations and be yourself. Yeah. Right. And, and that's, that's what 
true psychological safety. And if you read the book, Radical Candor and all these things, that's what this stuff is about. It's about accepting that humanness is messy and just leaning into it, which is is uncomfortable for people who are high achievers, right? Because we're about control. We're about defined outcomes. Like, this is what we want, right? Like think about reliability. Like we always talk about like reliability and we go, how many, how many managers out there, if you said to them, like, I could tell you that this gearbox is going to fail next Saturday at 11 o'clock in the morning, they would, they would kill for this. But if you say to them, like, you know, it's wearing out, you know, we're seeing that it's, it's going to fail soon. They hate that. They take, they hate that. Right. And it's like, is it really that different? Yeah. It's and just one like, is certainty and one, well, one is perceived certainty and one is not. <laughs> right. And, 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 uh, God help you if you work for an industrial engineer, uh, cause they're going to tell you, I need to, I need to observe seven consecutive days of, <laughs> of trending in this one direction before I do anything. Hey, can you come check back with me about that Saturday failure at, 11.30 on Friday, so we could talk about it within 24 hours of the event. <laughs> How long can I go, right? I'm just playing. Um, I had an industrial background, so I had to, had to poke fun at some of my friends. But um, now that, that's, that's super fascinating to me. You know, one of the things I was, I was a little – like when you told me you were going into the leadership space, I thought that's a big space, right? I mean I did, I did org leadership studies uh, when I was active duty uh, because I thought – that would be one of the routes that I could potentially pursue for uh, graduate studies in the Coast Guard. It was a fairly new program that they were they were sending students to, but there were a very small number of students a year, and it was um, the payback tour where you have to go to you know we sent you to school now you owe us a tour somewhere uh, was was basically like so do you want this desk at headquarters or do you want this desk at headquarters and I was like yeah I'm gonna avoid that route although I ended up going to headquarters for my grad school payback for naval engineering anyways but the the irony was um, you know when I got into the when I started doing leader org leadership studies I thought how are they possibly going to con- like put some types of bounds on this it's so big and the the one thing I worry about with with venturing into either leadership consulting or leadership uh, education or whatever the case is, is that it can be really hard to figure out where to focus your effort. I applaud you that you've been able to do that. Um, is there a particular uh, area of, of leadership? Is it, is it mostly around this, this, uh, this space of, um, of psychological safety and mental health? Is that really where you're kind of focusing the leadership studies? Or is it bigger than that? Yeah. So right now, I mean, we don't really touch on the mental health stuff too much um, because obviously I'm not qualified to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But where we go with the leadership, we start off with a little bit of mindset work. So stuff like, why are you there? Like, like, um, what do you, what are you good at? What are your values? What are you, what are your skills? How are you leading people? How do you perceive the people that you're leading? Like these are some of the things that we get into. And we just try to deconstruct any broken mindset strategies that you are running off of. So like if you're like before we jumped on the call, we were talking about like KPIs, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like if if your staff aren't hitting KPIs and you're just like, hey, work longer hours and you're just going to continue making them do that. Like at some point, something's going to break and it's going to be your people. And it's not that they're going to be successful and hit your KPI. It's just their performance is just going to get lower and lower until they burn out or quit or whatever. So that's kind of some of the stuff we get into early. And then obviously, like we teach stuff like psychological safety about like how to. And this is like I just wrapped up that certification is is about how do we measure and start improving psychological safety of a team. Mm. And, and like, if you look into the research, psychological safety is, is the number one key factor in identifying a high-performing team. And it reduces the mistakes you make. It increases your innovation. It improves the mood of the people and the engage of the engagement of the people. Like it's, 
it's really the found one of the foundational elements of like of any team that works. So there, there's a lot, there's a lot to learn in, in that program about teaming and teamwork. Yeah. Um, and I think that's important to, to note. I'm glad you brought that up because I think a lot of times uh, when we talk about leadership training or, or consultancy or education or, or studies or whatever, people tend to think that it's about an individual and a group of people, right? Like you're training an individual to lead a group of people. And uh, I think it's important to note that a lot of it is, is about teamwork and it's a lot about group work and it's not necessarily about one person separate from the team getting the most out of the team. It's about preparing that person to lead a group of people together. And that if you can train the whole team Imagine about how much more effective that would be than if you just trained one individual to lead a group of people. And I think that was one of the, the things that I, I experienced in the military that I took for granted was they gave everyone that wanted to make a certain rank, uh, you know, like their first round of leadership training, uh, formal leadership training outside of the stuff they, they instill in you through their culture and, and boot camp and all that fun. But uh, <laughs> which it is fun. <laughs> you can say that after you're done. That's um, right. <laughs> you know, but all those things you learn that are the kind of the on the job leadership training. A lot of it's about human nature and just, you know, what you respect and what you don't and, and how to work as a team and function as a team. But you're learning how to lead as a group. And I think it's really important that, you know, for organizations that really want to maximize the effectiveness of a leader or of a team. You should invest in both. It shouldn't just be about developing one or the other. Uh, it should be about getting everyone on the same page because you're not you're not training you're not trying to change a person. You're trying to change a culture, and a culture isn't one person, right? <laughs> oh, it me nuts. This is why the Marines are so freaking awesome, man. You know, they have a culture that just bleeds a certain way, and you're in it, and you're on it, and that's it, and. You know, for better or for worse, with a fit or not, you know, that culture is wildly successful at what it aims to do because they develop the culture in a way. And I think the organizations that look at leadership training or look at leadership experience, they're not, you know, if they don't look at it as a cultural thing, uh, then they're selling themselves short. They're definitely cutting their options short. You guys deal with culture, uh, you know, how to change organizational cultures and that type of stuff in your programming? Not necessarily from the lens of like, we want to radically change culture over the yeah. whole organization, but what you're right, you're absolutely right. And we look at it from the perspective of leadership of self. So if you start to lead yourself and you start to show up and, and take care of other people and make them be better, then you improve, the team improves, everybody improves, Right. Yeah. And that's really where we're coming at it from that angle is, and, and, and you're right. Like we have a group of guys in the training right now and some of them are managers and some of them are not, some of them are individual contributors. Some of them, I mean, one of them isn't, is a consultant of one, right. And you'd go, well, why would a consultant of one need leadership training? Well, you can lead yourself. You can lead your, your customers. You can lead, you know, your family, your kids, your wife, your husband, your this or that, right? There's a lot of spaces where you can lean in and influence and impact other people to be better. It doesn't need to just be like, hey, I am your superior, therefore you shall do something for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I, I, I really do appreciate that perspective because um, it's... I, I think one of the things that's missing from the consulting space, you know, because we're, we're technical guys, is that uh, this perception that a consultant is supposed to be a technical SME. And that's really what you are. Yep. Now, you're you're two parts, in my opinion. You're, you're one part technical SME and you're one part leader because a manager is not going to hire someone to consult them or help them change a program or build a program or change a culture or or Im implement some major thing that they can't that they can do within their own organization with their own staff. They're bringing a consultant to the table because they need someone to help them get something big off the ground that they may not be in a position to do themselves with their current resources. If you can't lead or help 
inform a manager who is a leader in their organization, you're half the consultant that they need, man. <laughs> well, Luke, how many times have you seen, and like I've worked in organizations, right? They've hired consultants. They've come in, basically delivered a report and walked out the door. It gets, like it that, gets that is so typical in our space that it's ridiculous. Like they'll do an FMEA or an RCM or whatever, a PMO, and they walk out the door and that's it. And yeah. that's why, and it's like, I've said this on my show a bunch of times is like, like the reason I got into leadership is like we did, I did 120, 130 episodes of Rob's Reliability Project. I had people who wrote the books on RCM, RCA, FMEA, PM, all, all that stuff. They wrote the book on all of it. They've all come on the show. And I, I know you know this, but I used to ask this question at the end of the podcast is like, hey, you're an expert in maintenance task analysis. What are we not getting right? Right. And the answer inevitably in all cases was culture and implementation. Yep. And what is both of those? It's leadership. In our yep. space, we cannot say that we don't know what best practices are because I have a bookshelf full of them. But yet yeah. we go out in the field and what do we see? We don't see the results. We don't see the best practices. And why? Because we don't lead. Yeah, oh, you're absolutely correct. I was just, so Muhammad's on the line. I was just talking to him about SMRP last week. And I said, hey, go get a membership to SMRP. If you're looking for an organization, that's a good one. Because they, they publish their best practices and they've got a great community and there's really good resources in there. We're trying to point into a couple of places. Um, and I had a been point to upkeep, upkeep Slack channel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that in just a moment. This is not on purpose, but it is awesome that Rob and I both showed up in upkeep t-shirts. <laughs> Ryan Chan and his team are doing something right. <laughs> uh, Ryan, you already know we love you, man. But uh uh, we appreciate the shirts and we are repping you guys to the fullest today. So definitely go check out the upkeep community because you want to talk about like the best free resource in our industry. That's it right there, man. I mean, it is a ton of wealth being shared there. But, um, you know, when we were talking, I said, hey, look, um, you know, you can you can go get all this information. But all that information, you you know, you need to be able to act on it. And if you're going to implement a program, you have to start with these baby steps. Go get all this knowledge, right? Get all these resources and start building something one step at a time, one day at a time and create a culture because, you know, he's dealing with something that, I mean, in, in many of the modern, modern world, you know, uh, cultures, we think we're resource constrained and, and we are more so than we want to be, but we're not resource constrained like they are in his area of the world. And uh, I've, I've been around there, so I'm sensitive to that. I get it, um, even though I don't experience it. I never worked in that environment. And I know that telling someone, hey, why don't you stand up a reliability program <laughs> in that situation is like telling them, why don't you just build a Mercedes Benz factory? You know, it's like, okay, that sounds impossible. Uh, but the reality is it takes one person, and Muhammad, I may or may not be talking to you, it takes one person with the right action to start pushing, and that's that leadership. And, and it used to frustrate me in the military when, when I would ask uh, junior enlisted people, hey, uh, or I'd ask someone wanting to go into officer candidate school, give me an example of a time you led, and they couldn't give you an example. And I'm like, I, I've got junior enlisted right out of boot camp that lead, they you know, it doesn't matter if it's a cleaning party. That one guy is leading all the other people cleaning. He's a leader. Like that would have been a good example. Some of them come in, they can't give you any example. And it always made me want to shake them because um, it doesn't take uh, it doesn't take position power to be a leader. You don't have to be the manager. You don't have to be the CEO. You can be anybody. You can be the, the dude at the very bottom and you can lead. Um, and I'm on a little bit of a rant, so I apologize, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to motivate Muhammad a little bit. <laughs> it's true. It's true, right? Like my favorite quote is from Simon Sinek and he says, leadership is not a rank, it's a choice. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what it is. And, and Muhammad, I mean, first off, thanks. I really appreciate you listening to, to whichever show you downloaded. Um, but, but it's Maybe true. Right? He always plays them. <laughs> That's right. Always. They never turn off. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's true, right? It's like 
and we've all been there, right? We all are, are in an organization where, and, and this is the one of the struggles of reliability people is we see the world in a way that the other, the rest of the organization doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, they're in a reactive mode. They're in a mode where they're basically run to failure, run out there, fix it as fast as possible, get it running, celebrate that, and then move on. Right. And we're trying to do, we're trying to get them to start thinking about the future. We're tr- starting to get them to think about planned work and predictive maintenance and, you know, or condition monitoring, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And really what I would say in a resource constrained environment is don't take on these massive things. Like don't think about organizational change and don't think about like, how do I get to the CEO and ask for a bigger capital budget? Like I've been there. It doesn't work. Yeah. Right. You're not going to overhaul your whole organization on day one. Even if you have a great business case for it to happen, they're not going to go for it. But what you can do is lean into the people around you. Who's, who, who's your manager? Who are the people that are adjacent to you in, in different roles? How can you help them be better at their job? How can you help them just move the needle a little bit here and there? right? These are the team dynamics that you have 100% control over, right? You can show up and you can be nice to them. You can support them. You can lean into vulnerability. You can help them with whatever you're an expert in. You can coach them to be better here or there. That that can be your manager too, right? Like it doesn't have to just be, you know, direct reports or people adjacent to you in an organization. That's what you can do today. It costs nothing. It costs effort and time, and that's it, right? You're already there. So those are the things that you can do to start right now. And that's what, I mean, that's absolutely what I would recommend to anybody who's listening to this is start showing up and looking at things that you can control and you can do to make the people around you better. Mm. Yeah, that give a damn factor followed up by some action really goes far. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, here's the thing. It's like, how many people have you worked for that you truly felt gave a damn about you. Yeah, I've I've been blessed. Um, I'm I'm not a good example uh, in I, but I had an, I had an, I had a non I had an atypical military career. I guess you could say. I don't know. It was weird, but I had I didn't realize how unique my experience was, Rob, until I got toward the end of it and I looked around and said, "Wow, uh, this was kind of unique." Like some of my bosses were some of the best bosses around. And I would like to say I lucked out and got the good ones. Um, but I just think that honestly, I bring out the best in people. No, I'm joking. <laughs> no, I'm joking. It's no, true ownership though. <laughs> yeah, honestly, someone, you know, I was I was always in, uh, in good immediate company. Now, I will say this. I worked with some of the worst leaders because I was in good situations and we were in high performing teams and what we had done and the, and the, and the culture we built and the kind of people we were um, was the kind of thing that was going to fix bad cultures. So we became, you know, Hey, you, you go, de- you can go deal with that. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't admit to it openly when I was getting ready to retire at first, but I told a couple of my close friends, I'm just burned out from, from having to fix poor leadership uh, because there were a couple of instances where I was put in a position where it was like just kind of un, it could really suck the fun out of your job pretty quickly if you let it. But I was I was crazy or ignorant enough to go, no one's going to ruin my party. <laughs> and so I'm the guy running around with my coffee cup going, hey, what's everyone doing? Having fun. And they're like, how are you smiling right now? We're all miserable, you know? And, uh, it was, it was, it took a lot. And I'd go in my stateroom and shut the door and be like, oh, you know, it takes, it takes so much out of me to go out there and, and try and motivate other people in the face of that. But it gave me energy that I didn't have before. And I got that from working for both good leaders and bad leaders. So yes, I did work for bad leaders that made me want to punch everyone around me. And then I worked for great leaders that I left at the end of the day going, there's no way I'm ever going to be that good. <laughs> and I got a, I got a good enough balance of that to 
to say that I was blessed because if it had been tipped in one way or the other more so, I would have been really screwed up because if I'd been nothing but bad, my outlook on life would be dramatically you know, worse. And if it was nothing but good, man, would I have fallen hard when I finally did land in a tough spot, you know? This isn't the way the world's supposed to be. I grew up around a bunch of crazy chiefs, so <laughs> I thought boot camp was going to be uh, drinking and 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 partying and having fun, you know, with some push-ups in between. But <laughs> so you're you're still you're up in Canada. Where where in Canada are you at? In Edmonton. Edmonton. Yeah. And um, how far from Vancouver is that? Like, if you got a car and drove to Vancouver, how far is that? It's probably like twelve hours or something. It's pretty far. Yeah. So you're like mid mid Canada, a little yeah. Bit. So we're we're due north of Montana, so gotcha. probably like six hours north of the border, roughly. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful, man. That's awesome. Um, what a what a cool area of the country. So for you to meet us in Winnipeg was like a minor inconvenience. <laughs> I had to fly. It was what was it? it? Was I think it was like a couple hour flight, something like that, an hour and a half maybe. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I to, yeah, it went too bad. I, I, I flew to Winnipeg uh, to support a PMAC event with Rob and Jesus Safante and Suzanne Greenman brought us all there and and Bob Latino. And it was just so cool for us to sit down in the hotel bar and have a beer together and <laughs> have face-to-face with all these great people. And I realized at that moment, each one of these people are like amazing human beings on their own. And these are the kind of people you want to hang out with. So, you know, you inspired me to, to, to do some of this, Rob, because I wanted to keep doing that. I wanted to keep hanging out with knuckleheads. <laughs> people think like I do. And it was just so hard to do with our, with our, you know, separation and everyone being so busy. So, you know, this to me is a blessing to have you on today. And I, I'm, I feel like we're getting, we're catching up after a while. We haven't been able to hang out. So tell me, tell me a little bit about, um, on what you think is really like, if you had to take one lesson out of what you've learned on the leadership launchpad over the last year, this has been the one question I wanted to ask you the whole day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what have you really learned that maybe surprised you? Like when you got into the into the leadership launchpad, what's the one thing you've learned since then that you maybe caught you by surprise, but has been significant? Big question. Totally unscripted. I would say, actually, this is what I'll say. And it's weird to feel this way, or it's weird to say this, I think. And and people may not, I'm not sure if the, they may get it. They'll, I hope they get it. Um, for me, it's, it's inclusion. Mm. And I think it's exactly what you said, right? It's when we were in Winnipeg, we had a group of people where you felt like you belong. Mm. And that's what people want from work. Yeah. But the lack of psychological safety, the lack of diversity, the lack of openness and some of the rigid cultures that we see in our space, it'll, it doesn't allow people to feel included. And when they don't feel included, they, their performance, their engagement, their mental health, their happiness, all of that suffers. And for me, that's the biggest thing that, and it's funny, right? Like, like I, I did a, I did a talk with Shad Rack um, at his company and there's like a group of African American leaders that uh, I was talking to. And it's like, wow, why would a white man be talking to African Americans about, about inclusion and diversity? No, this was part of their, their uh, company at Dow. And, but, but it's like, truly, I believe that this is, this is a thing because I felt like, and throughout my career, I felt like I haven't belonged in the workplaces I've worked for. Hmm. And to be honest, I almost think that at some aspect, it almost cost me my life. And so that's where I really think that for me, creating the leadership program and and teaching like aspects of vulnerability and trust and connection and psychological safety like this is so people can feel like they belong 
at their work and they can take the masks off and they can just be themselves. And if there's a great quote on leadership, I forget who said it, but basically they're like, true leadership is becoming who you truly are. It's as easy and as hard as that. Yeah, the easy and hard part, <laughs> that resounds. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say it, man. I think some people uh, would say, oh, that's just touchy-feely crap. And, you know, we don't have room for that. We're too busy working and all this stuff. But it's true, man. You can't change human nature. I mean, if if you don't feel like you're included it, or you're comfortable where you're at, you're not going to want to be there. You're not going to want to go back. If you're not part of the of the of the team in a productive way, you're not going to stay there long. You're not going to stay there long. It's it's and for an employer, you're you would want to pay attention to that message that you just sent because everyone's dealing with retention issues, especially with the, you know, post-covid, you know, great resignation looming uh seemingly over people's heads and there's a huge shortage of talent as it is. So that amplifies the retention issue because if you don't retain the talent you have, you're going to have an even harder time finding new talent. And if you could have made this a whole lot better by paying attention to the culture you've developed, that does make people feel like they're welcome. That does show that people are where they should be. Man, that's that's really powerful stuff, man. And I, I agree with you. I, I agree completely with you. I've been on a couple of ships, right? And on every last one of them, it's the same ship again. Because there's few things that aren't going to change. You are going to leave. You are going to be stuck together. It is <laughs> going to be a unique experience. And everybody's you know, in it together. And you're going to bump your head because the doors are too small. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, don't step on the threshold as you go through the door. I used to tell people, like, hey, look, you're going to get a nickname. That's a good thing. If they don't give you a nickname in the next two weeks, I want you to come talk to me because something's gone terribly wrong for you. And we need to figure out how to fix this because that means they're not they're not latching on to you. You know, the nickname is like part of the uh, you know, they're taking they're taking you in as family. And uh, if people aren't giving you a hard time within obviously within reason. Um, then it, then you're having a hard time acclimating with the crew. They look at you got like you got three heads when you say that. But that culture there is so strong uh, that you can see it as clear as day. Uh, and and I think that the, that we benefit from that in in that type of environment. When you are more, I hate to I hate to say it, when you're more integrated with society in your work. Where you, you know, it's a little bit more, I guess you could say, a normal work environment where you leave your house, you go to work, you can, you can, you come home, you, you punch, you know, you do your thing every day. Um, that's much harder to develop that type of, you know, bond, that culture. It's much harder to integrate with a team. You know, people go to those types of environments and they don't come back the same person usually for in a good way. You know, they get better as a human because they do get that sense, like you said of some sense of belonging. A lot of the veterans I've worked with um, and retired, they've struggled with that when they've left. It's not just about a sense of purpose. I think a lot of people say, oh, well, veterans, you know, that struggle, it's because they've lost a sense of purpose. There's people that retire, go find another job with, with great purpose, and they still struggle because it's not the same culture. They don't have that bond, that brotherhood, that that sisterhood, that relationship, like a family, whether you like it or not, you know, and that really does take a toll on on people mentally that have left the service. They don't feel like they're ever going to get back what they had. And the people that left intentionally uh, and could have stayed later, sometimes they have regrets and they're like, oh, I should have stayed. And you're like, no, nah, dude, you got to look past that. And then the people that didn't have an option to stay, they're really bitter because they feel like they got forced out of the best thing that ever happened to them. Uh, and then there's just random people that are just like, no, nah, I'm good. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but, you know, when I when I retired, I, I was worried about that, um, whether I was going to be I was going to feel a bit lost. You know, I guess I did something natural. I went back to work with people that are all retired military. So we're all, you know, kind of in the same gang and I support the Navy. So here I am, you know, in a, in a similar <laughs> situation. But I always worry about that. Um 
people not getting that experience. I look at my kids and I worry about that because they've, you know, unless they get started in an environment like that, they're, they're not going to feel that level of satisfaction. And so do you, you, do you see that a lot from people that come to the program um, that they just haven't found that sense of belonging yet or? I mean, I, I think, I mean, first off, you're right. Like, I, I think you're right. Now, the second thing is people think it's touchy feely, but I mean, based on it, it's like disengaged no. employees cost, like, what is it? It's like 85% of the world is disengaged and a disengaged employee costs 34% of their salary on an annual basis. And that. in the United States alone, they're saying it's 450 to $550 billion a year. So if we're talking about, is it touchy-feely? Yes, but does it cost you money? Absolutely. And it's costing you a lot of money, right? Do you guys get that a lot? Do you get, I'm not trying to step on the other question, but do you get that a lot where people come in and they're like, yeah, I'm just in this environment that doesn't latch on to this. You know, they just don't appreciate this. Yeah, I mean, I get asked a lot is like, what's the return on investment on people-centric leadership? It's a hard question to answer because there's no like there's no real study that was done that said like, hey, like this company was here and, you know, we took a control group and a, and a process group and we ran them through and this is the delta. And like there's not that's not done. Um, but I mean, there's so many statistics on and, and like to go back when you're talking about the great res, great resignation, mm -hmm. it's like the question is why? And for me, what I've been really thinking about is what COVID has taught us is that work can be done differently than how we wanted it or how it was done before. And we see this a lot in our space where people say, we've always done it this way. Yeah. And that's an excuse until you see the new way and you go, well, this new way is better. Or I like this new way in this way. And that I think when you hear the same person say that, that's complaining about like, they're, they're complaining about it, but then they're doing it. <laughs> when people say it's, you know, this is the way it's always been or, you know, whatever. I hate it when they say that. And then 10 minutes later, they're like, yeah, we can't possibly change that. Let <laughs> <laughs> me rewind and show you what you just said. Did you have this? That's right. Hypocritical is only, is only one way. But, but that's the thing, right? Is like, I think that the companies that are really rushing people back to the office now, and they're basically like, hey, we want everybody to be in five days a week or, you know, we want people to, you know, stop being remote and this and that. It's like the, the answer or the question that I have for them is what's in it for the employee? Like you've you've knocked off two hours of commute a day. Oh, it's huge. You've t you've knocked off, you know, like when, you know, like me, like I bought a dog. I bought a dog over COVID, right? And now it's like, well, he's going to be alone, mm -hmm. right? And I can't take him out at lunch. I can't take him out when he needs to go to the bathroom. Like these are things that have gone away. And I think the question is, is like, if I was effective at my job remotely, why do I need to go sit in a chair in an office that you can look at me for, right? And I, I think for me, what I see is the leaders that want people to come back to the office so they can look at them they're very much old school type leaders. And it's like, I want to see you in the chair so I can pretend that I see you working, right? And, and they equate productivity to time spent in a chair. And it's like, that's not the case. It's the worst measure. Right? And, and it's like, yeah, I had a friend um, who went to work as an investment banker after college and they, had to, they, they were working like 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Right. And he used to say, like, I don't know what people do all day. Like, mm -hmm. I sit there and wait until the managing director goes out and then I wait another 20 minutes and then I leave. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> this is what the culture is, is the culture has devolved to we sit here and we just basically punch the clock and we stay longer. So then we look like we're, we're working hard when we're not doing anything. And so I, I just... I challenge people in, in, in just thinking about like, what's in it for your employee? Like, what are they getting out of coming back to the office? You need to make that more appealing to them than just like, I want the productivity of when they go to the coffee machine, they're going to see somebody from another department. 
Well, mm. that's great, but that does nothing for them. Yeah, I, I, you know, there's a there's a couple of points you made there that I absolutely um, am in line with. Um, I think the I think you have to have flexibility as an employer when you start thinking about the return to work because uh, not all positions are created equal, right? Like I can do my job, I do do my job remotely. Could not have done that when I was a diesel mechanic. That would have been a problem, right? That's right. Um, so there's there's a one example of where f- physical work requires physical presence. Absolutely. Yeah. And then knowledge work gives me the freedom to to roam, right? And then the uh, the ability to get talent that you couldn't acquire locally because you're geographically your resource constraint is huge. And m- much of the, the the people I work with in government have have taken advantage of remote work to overcome that. They want subject matter experts in certain areas and they're willing to let them work remotely to get that. Um, I, I love the conversation about the measure of a person's value for being on site. And the reason I say that is uh, it's like measuring the value of a manufacturing facility by how many hours it's online rather than the number of, of widgets it produces. Like, what are you selling? Are you selling hours or are you selling widgets? I mean, we sell- do that. We do. We use availability, right? Right. Well, and I can do that for the plant because it's a measure of like plant health, I guess, to a certain degree. Right. But when it comes to the people, it's like, hey, look, man, like just because I'm here doesn't mean I'm producing as much as if I was at home. So like to your point about driving, when I was in D.C., I commuted three to four hours a day, a day. I was overworked. I was exhausted. I couldn't concentrate properly. My sleep was terrible. Um, you know, it's just the, the quality of life was was not as good as it could have been. Even if they had just said, look, you can telework two days a week. It would have really helped the DC metro area if universally they had that kind of thing going. On days when the federal government was given like a half day or a day off, or they were encouraged to remote work, you can get in and out of DC like it was no one's business. I was like, man, why don't they do this more often? <laughs> and it's not about not wanting to work. I want to work, but I don't want, why would I give up, like to your point, the value of an hour, right? Uh, why would I give up an hour of productivity for an hour of commuting if me being on site doesn't increase productivity? It's a it's a complete total. Um, I've I've slept much better since I retired from the military and started working remotely uh, because I get more sleep instead of driving an hour and a half in the morning. I can get that extra forty five minutes of sleep. I still get up. I'm still on time. I'm still doing my thing right when I'm supposed to be doing it. Um, but my quality of life is significantly better. Now, with that being said, I if you had asked me if I could work from home and be happy when I was active duty, I would have told you that sounded like a nightmare because I'm a people person and being stuck at a desk or in a cubicle by myself sounded like taking a claustrophobic person and sticking them in a box. <laughs> like, that's the worst thing you could possibly do to me. But the reality is I'm in meetings all day. I'm on the phone all day. I'm interacting with people all day. And I've got, you know, other people in my life that I see, like my family, which I never saw before. So there's a a way different quality of life thing. Um, There is on the mental health side of this, though, I can see where it would be very challenging for people to do what I do as remotely as I am, as remotely as as remote as I am, um, because there is a sense of disconnection. And you have to know whether you're good for that or not. I do have some friends that retired from the military that drive an hour into work and an hour back because they tried it and they just couldn't do it. They were like, I can't work remotely, dude. I cannot do it. I can't do it. I'm like, hey, man, to each their own. But this is, you know, I'm I'm using that as an example to show the flexibility thing. Two people, same job, entirely different situation. And and all that is, right, is you're showing empathy and compassion for the person. Right. And, and that's the biggest key to this return to work. It's not that we're going to say, hey, stay, everybody stay five days remote or everybody come in five days. It's just you have to be able to understand the people. And like literally the company that I work for a few weeks ago, they said like, hey, and they put out a survey to the department. They said like, hey, how would you feel if the people who had two vaccines didn't have to wear a mask anymore at work? And like the top two answers were like anxious and, and like 
basically like, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want that. And then less, yeah, those were the top two. And then basically less than a week later, they said like, Hey, well, this is the policy we're going for where you know, if you got two vaccines and it's been two weeks, you don't have to wear a mask anymore. And we're, we're conforming to Alberta and Canadian government standards. And you're like, well, then why'd you ask the question? Like if, 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 right. Like, like, like if you're just going to tell us to pound sand, then don't ask the question. Right. And, and I think for me, it just shows the type of leadership that they're employing. Right. Is like, you're not listening. If, if you just want like, Hey, five days a week, come back. Don't wear a mask. We don't care. Like, fine. Just say it. Don't, don't try to sugarcoat it. Don't try to like pretend that you're, you're being empathetic. Like that's one of the biggest things that I see in industry and, and what destroys trust and destroys any capability of you as a leader is when you say one thing and do another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really tough. Um, Yeah. That, that just, even if, and I've, and I've been in situations, leadership situations where you intended to do one thing and then you had to do another, even after you told everyone, but you can come out and be honest about that, right? You can come out and say, Hey, look, I had every intention of going down route a, but I couldn't. And here's why. And it's logical. And I'm not making excuses. I love you guys. We're all in this together. We, we, and we're going to suffer together, you know? And that takes vulnerability, right? It does. To show up and say, Hey, I was going to do this and I couldn't because of whatever. And that takes humility and vulnerability that a lot of leaders don't have. So, so I think you would have really, uh, you really would have enjoyed working for one of the commandants. I, I was, when I was in the Coast Guard, we had a commandant that uh, was in office when I was um, at headquarters. And when you're working at headquarters, you're, you're essentially commandant staff even though you're not like directly involved with them on a day-to-day basis by any stretch of the imagination, but you're exposed to the leadership uh, at the scene, the most senior leadership in the service when you're there. And I was a workforce manager. So my whole you know, job was to figure out how to keep Naval engineers in the coast guard and how to get new ones. And one, uh, one of the bigger concerns we had is the, 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 the service, the government was changing the retirement structure there's nothing we can do to change that. That's, you know, it's congressionally mandated and all that good stuff. And the DOD said, thou shalt get in line. And we all went, okay. So here we are swallowing the pill, right? And they were giving the younger workforce options. They were like, hey, you can choose to take the green pill or the, or the red pill, right? Like, and um, are those the right colors, green or red? <laughs> I don't know. So, uh, I can't remember. My matrix knowledge is out of date. So this this policy comes out and I remember being really frustrated and I said, man, this is really going to be screwed up and they're, they're going to lose all the top talent because you're basically incentivizing people to leave. Cause you're like, Hey, I'm not going to give you the big pension anymore. I'm going to give you a reduced pension. If you stick around long enough, instead of 50%, you're going to get 40% and all your high performers are going to leave early. Cause they can, they can also take like a severance package. Mm-hmm. I'm like, man, what's the, what's the incentive to stick around besides you can't do this anywhere else in the world. Right. That's really the big thing is like, if you want to be in the Coast Guard, well, here it is. Right. You can't do this anywhere else. And I was, at first, I didn't really know how to take the feedback, but the commandant said something very important that I think you would, you would like. He said, guys, we can't solve all these problems, but we can be in control of who we are and we have to be the employer of choice. And I thought, the employer choice. How are you going to achieve that when you can't give people what they are looking for? But, you know, it's true commandant wisdom. He was right, man. Like I've, since I've left the service, I mean, it resounded me with, with me while I was in the service, but after I left and after I worked on other places, especially corporate positions where I do hiring and firing and, and all that stuff. And thank God I haven't had to, to, to do the latter, but you know, every time we go to hire somebody, I'm like, Hey dude, we're the company you want to work with. We're the employer of choice. We're the one you want to be with. Every company should be feeling that way. And I don't, I don't know that people really do that and then let that kind of guide their decision making. You know, how do I become the employer of choice? I mean, out of everything I've I've heard uh, 
the, the commandant say in that few years? That's the one that kind of stuck with me because I think it, you know, as, as packed as it is with meaning and, and you could take it and run with it in a million different ways. It's, it really just kind of was like a little North star. Like how do we exist as the employer of choice? And I think that that kind of goes to your point, right? Like is the organization leading in a way that makes people want to be there, even though they may not be able to give you like the most vacation days or, you know, that extra bump at the end of the year that the guys across the street get, but they're all miserable over there. So let those bastards be miserable. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, I love it. I absolutely love it. And I'll, I'll give you a quote here. So we did a podcast with Matt Popesall last week and he works for the predictive index. Oh, I haven't and seen that yet. He's, um, he's, he calls himself the godfather of talent optimization. I think he, I heard, I think you guys went, did you guys do that live? No, no, no. It's, it's just recorded. It, it's posted. Oh. I think it posted Monday. Um, yeah. But he said that people are the last remaining competitive advantage. Mm. And I think that's, that's the key piece that I see is like, you know, and, and it's what you said, right? It's like, it's like you want to be the employer of choice. You said you can't give them what they want, but most people, you know, the money is, is down the list of things they want. Yeah. They want to feel heard. They want to feel like they have a purpose. They want to feel like their organization cares about them and cares about a purpose that's, you know, bigger than just the, like, you know, like selling, I don't know, widgets, right? These are what people truly want. And you have all the power in the world to do that for your people. You just got to make the choice and do it. Yeah. That's leadership driven. You're, you're absolutely correct. I love it. Um, that's one of the reasons I'm with the company I'm with, Amentum. I mean, I've been blessed with two great companies back to back, but the company I'm with, Amentum, um, they're just, at least the leadership I, I interact with um, and that I have are just fantastic. And I've tried to express that to them without coming across as being like cheesy or like, you know, but like when the vice president or whatever is like, hey, I want to talk to you because I want to make sure that you're not uh, disappointed or disheartened with something. I'm like, man, I really appreciate that. As someone who had to lead 150 people, you know, at a unit, I know what it takes to do that. Man, that's really good that you do that. <laughs> like, thank you for being a good leader, you know, without coming across as sounding cheesy. It's like, this is the kind of culture you want to work in. They take care of you. They're concerned about you. I've had, you know, hey, make sure you're charging us, you know, for for this and that and, and make sure you're, you're, you're keeping your stuff in, in line. And if you need anything, don't hesitate to call. And, you know, it's just it's just great. Uh, now, you know, on the flip side, we're, 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 we work really hard, you know, but that to me, it, it almost increases the, the need when you have such a hard working culture, it increases the need for that type of sensitivity because you're walking a very fine line with people um, where it's easy to be tipped off one side or the other when there's a constant wind at, you know, it's like, you know, I have to equate everything to something on a ship, right? So like, when you're when you're driving a ship into a port, if you've got like a strong beam wind or beam current, dude, it's hard as hell to drive a ship. I mean, you're all over the map. And it's the same way when you're, you know, when you're going through your life, if you've got this constant pressure from one side, could be workload, could be poor family life, could be whatever, um, you're constantly pushing against that. You have to have energy. It expends a lot of energy. And um, it's hard to stay focused. And you're going to you're going to have times where you lapse in, in, in being able to deal with it on your own. And um you know, it kind of comes into everything we talked about today, man. A little bow on there. Um, there we go. <laughs> you know, if you so so, Rob, I'd be I'd be an idiot if I if I if I didn't ask you. You know, if you had one thing to tell a young person coming into our industry, uh, I don't care if it's the maintenance side, the reliability side, the whatever side, any of it, any of it. Like, if you could tell them one thing, one word of advice, and you only had a few, you know, nuggets to give them, what would it be? Chart your own path. Because I think a lot of us, we go into a job and we expect them to tell us what training we need. We expect them to tell us, you know, whatever, where, where our career path is going to be. And, you know, like, hey, well, we hop this way and then we hop this way and then we hop this way and then we sort of, we Christmas tree our way to the top, right? But it's like, are you truly taking accountability and ownership of your own growth and your own career path and what you truly want. Not, not what your mom and dad said, not what society tells you, not what, you know, 
these external things tell you you should want. And it's truly what you want. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really powerful, man, because if you don't do that, you're going to be living someone else's life and you're never going to be satisfied ever. Um, I posted about diversity uh, in career paths last week, and, and that was, you know, that falls right in line with that post where I was like, you know, go out there and mix it up a bit because you never know what you're going to fall in love with. Um, I did not. Little secret. I did not enter the workforce as a mechanic. <laughs> right? That's what I ended up doing. But that was something I loved to do, but it wasn't the thing I said I want to grow up to be, you know. And how do you ask a 17 or an 18 year old kid to figure out what they're going to do for the rest of their lives? That's just that's just so crazy to me to think you can do that and they're going to have the right answer. And it's crazy to me to think you'll be 18 years old and think you've got the right answer. <laughs> I mean, you, that's the thing. <laughs> you know? So cool, man. So, so Rob, tell us, um, you know, tell all the, the millions of people out there watching, tell them, tell them about uh, where they can find you and, 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 and the cup, a couple of the high points about what you're doing these days. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're following me on LinkedIn, if you don't yet, um, you probably do, but, but if you don't yet, you know, click connect or click follow me, um, subscribe to both the podcasts. So, the Leadership Launchpad Project podcast, Dismantling the High Performance Narrative podcast. They're on Apple, Stitcher, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. And then obviously, like there's a few offerings I have right now. So I do do one-on-one leadership coaching. So if that's something you're interested in, just hit me up. Um, I also offer psychological safety assessments. So mm-hmm. depending on your organization, I may be able to give you one for free. Um, just let me know. I have a page on robsreliability.com where you can check that out. And then also we have the leadership program. It's 12-week online program, but there is live components to it. So there's individual coaching with me. There's also group coaching. Uh, The next one will be running, I believe it'll be September-ish. That will be running the next one for public. Um, but if you want one privately for your company, like let's say you have 10 or more people you want to run it, just hit me up and we can run it anytime you want it. Um, so yeah, those are the things I got going on. Lots going on. Um, I love it, man. Yeah, definitely hit me up if you need any help. Yeah, I love it. And you know, if you're not following Rob on LinkedIn, I don't, I don't know if I actually know you. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone I know follows Rob on LinkedIn and you know, that's where I found Rob and thank God I did because um, it's been it's been a great friendship. And uh, even though the distance separates us, uh, you know, you're always one of those guys. I feel like I could just give a shout and talk to and anytime you, know, you want. I'm here. <laughs> appreciate it, brother. And we're definitely going to get you back um, as many times and as often as you want. You're always welcome here. And um, I always part where I try to remember to part because I have a terrible memory. But I always try to, to, uh, to part with a message, which is to be good human beings to each other. And um yeah. I surround myself with good people, man. You're definitely one of them. So, you know, for everyone out there, be good human beings to each other. Don't forget what Rob talked about. We said a lot of cool stuff today. And um, Rob, this will be on on LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, Twitter. I think it's via Periscope and Facebook. So if anyone's out there in in those worlds, um, check out Rob's stuff. Check out his pages. um, Stay in contact with him. And if you are for some weird reason, unable to find him, reach out to me and I'll get you in contact with him. So Rob, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today, bud. Thanks um, for having me. Yeah. I appreciate you, dude. And I appreciate everything you're doing for the industry. Thank you. It's very meaningful work, man. Thank you. All right, guys, take it easy.